Greetings, and welcome to Etzheim's weekly podcast, recorded live in Richardson, Texas. We invite you now to join us for one of our synagogue's Shabbat messages. Shabbat Shalom. Shabbat Shalom, everyone uh, watching on YouTube. Uh, before we start, very quick uh, uh, update. Uh, we've got some upcoming exciting announcements for you, which we'll give you more details on as soon as we can. But uh, just to give you the big picture, we are looking to restart as much of the services as we can, like, for example, the June Shabbat, uh, on June 6th. So Saturday, June 6th, we're going to have some big changes and some, big, and some reopenings. We have not worked out all the details yet, uh, but as soon as we do, we will be communicating that to you. So please be reading your emails each week and in the announcements, because there will be very important details coming out about the reopening of the shul and, and the new rules involved to, uh, to comply with uh, the health uh, standards uh, and do everything, we can, everything possible we can to uh, reopen as much as we can and return to back to normal as much as we can. Uh, so for you at home, though, now, all you watching on YouTube at home, I want to, again, encourage you to be worshiping with us. So kids, don't sit there at home on the couch with your hands folded. Please be entering into worship with us, uh, as well as the, as the children here as well. Same encouragement. Uh, and I want to also encourage you to pay it, be, help parents to help your children pay attention to this drash, or all the future drashes, by a couple of things. You can ask, ask them to take notes on the drash, or if they're too young to take notes, to draw a picture Draw a picture of any theme that they hear me talking about in the message. Just draw a picture of the story or theme or anything that comes to their mind as they're listening. So, draw, draw, so right now, parents, I, ask, I encourage you to, to get paper for your children, to take notes or to draw pictures uh, about the message. And then afterwards, when we're over at the service and you're sitting around your lunch table, you and your family can be discussing the message together. And how, how, and how the word of God is, 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 is seeping into your children's hearts and how they're applying it to their lives. It would be a great uh, Shabbat, Oneg, lunch table conversation. So, so please, children, pay attention and parents, encourage them in these ways uh, to do so. Amen? Amen. Well, as you know, we've been in this long series on, on Elijah and Elisha. Uh, today, we're going to look at the famous story of the chariots of fire uh, from 2 Kings chapter 6. So turn with me to 2 Kings chapter 6, beginning in verse 8. And we have it on the overhead as well. Now, the king of Aram was at war with Israel. After conferring with his officers, he said, I'll set up my camp in such and such a place. The man of God sent word to the king of Israel, beware of passing that place, because the Arameans are going down there. So the king of Israel checked on the place indicated by the man of God. Time and again, time and again Elisha warned the king so that he was on his guard in such places. This enraged the king of Aram. He summoned his officers and demanded of them, tell me, which of us is on the side of Israel? None of us, my lord the king, said one of his officers. But Elisha, the prophet who's in Israel, tells the king of Israel the very words that you speak in your bedroom. Go. Find out where he is, the king ordered, so that I can send men there to capture him. The report came back. He's in Dothan. Then he sent horses and chariots and a strong force there. They went by night and surrounded the city. When the servant of the man of God got up and went out early the next morning, an army with horses and chariots had surrounded the city. Oh, no, my lord. What shall we do? 
The servant asked. Don't be afraid, the prophet answered. Those who are with us are greater than those who are with them. And Elisha prayed, open his eyes, Lord, so that he may see. And the Lord opened the servant's eyes. And he looked and saw the hills full of horses and chariots of fire all around Elisha. As the enemy came down toward him, Elisha prayed to the Lord, strike this army with blindness. So he struck them with blindness, as Elisha had asked. Elisha told them, this isn't the road, this isn't the city. Follow me. I'll lead you to the man you're looking for. And he led them right into Samaria. After they entered the city, Elisha said, Lord, open the eyes of these men so they can see. Then the Lord opened their eyes, and they looked, and they were inside Samaria. When the king of Israel saw them, he asked Elisha, Shall I kill them, my father? Shall I kill them? Don't kill them, he answered. Would you kill those you've captured with your own sword or bow? Set food and water before them, so that they may eat and drink, and then go back to their master. So he prepared a great feast for them. And after they'd finished eating and drinking, he sent them away, and they returned to their master. So the bands from Aram stopped raiding Israel's territory. Amen. Now, if you remember, when we began this series last fall, we began it by looking at Matthew 11, uh, where John the Baptist, Yochanan Hamabil, John the Baptist, he's stuck in prison, and he asked Yeshua this in Matthew 11, verse 3. Are you the one who was to come, or should we expect somebody else? And do you remember how Yeshua answered him? Look at Matthew 11, verse 4. Yeshua replied, Go back and report to John what you hear and see. The blind see. The lame walk. The lepers are cleansed. The deaf hear. The dead are raised. And the gospel is preached to the poor. Now notice the signs Yeshua points to to prove that he is the Messiah. Because that list is basically a summary of the careers of Elijah and Elisha. And of course, Yeshua did them all too in, in spades. Uh, where Elijah or Elisha may have done some of these things one time, Yeshua did them all numerous times. What Yeshua is saying here in Matthew 11 is not only are these great miracles, which they are, but they're also signs or representations of how God's salvation works. So, for example, while, um, while Yeshua came to heal the physically blind, he also came to heal the spiritually blind. He not only came to raise the physically dead, but to raise the spiritually dead as well. He not only came to help the physically poor, but the spiritually poor as well. So we need to read Yeshua's miracles, and all the miracles, by the way, in the Hebrew Scriptures, which point to him, uh, on both of these levels, on two levels. And so with this background, let's look at this story in, in 2 Kings 6 about sightedness and blindness and what we can learn from it. Let's see how the story teaches us, number one, uh, the gift of spiritual sight. Number two, the condition of spiritual blindness. And number three, how such blindness can be healed. So the gift of spiritual sight, the condition of spiritual blindness, and how we can be healed of our blindness. Now, we learn about the gift of spiritual sight from the first two scenes in the story. The king of Aram, which, by the way, is Syria, uh, there, he's at war with Israel. 
Uh, and Elisha, he's given special spiritual insight, special spiritual sight from God. So that every time the king of Syria tries to make a move, the king of Israel knows all about it. There's almost a, a comedic scene here in verse 11, which says in 2 Kings 6, verse 11, this enraged the king of Syria. He summoned his officers and demanded of them, tell me which of us is on the side of the king of Israel? None of us, my lord, the king. But Elisha the prophet tells the king of Israel what you whisper in your bedroom. So when the king of Syria finds out where Elisha is, which is the town of Dothan, uh, he sends an army to capture him. That's the first scene. Now in the second scene, Elisha and his servant, they're holed up in the city, uh, uh, surrounded by the Syrians. And the servant, Elisha's servant is petrified. So Elisha prays to him, to the Lord, prays to the Lord, 2 Kings 6, 17. Elisha prayed, open his eyes, Lord, so that he may see. And the Lord opened the servant's eyes, and he looked and saw the hills full of horses and chariots of fire all around Elisha, these angelic hosts. The servant of Elisha could see the physical reality of the Syrian army, uh, but he could not see the spiritual reality of God's army. He could see the physical forces, uh, but not the spiritual forces. Uh, he couldn't see that those that are with us are more than those that are with them. What is blindness? Blindness is an impaired ability to recognize the truth. So, for example, physical blindness is an impaired ability to see and recognize what's in your physical environment. There may be dangers out there coming at you, uh, but you can't see them uh, because you're blind. So spiritual blindness is, an, is the impaired ability to see what's spiritually around you. Uh, and put this on the overhead. Often in the Bible, physical blindness represents spiritual blindness. Uh, and getting or gaining physical sight represents gaining spiritual sight. Uh, so for example, when Paul is on the road to Damascus, and he's literally physically blinded by this brilliant light, he encounters the risen Lord Yeshua. So he's physically blinded. Why? It's God's way of saying it's because you, Paul, are spiritually blind. And when he gets his physical sight back, it's as he gets his spiritual sight, as he comes to see who Yeshua is. Another example, John 9, Yeshua heals a man born blind. But he doesn't just leave it at physical healing. Yeshua not only heals him physically, but then he, he, he leads him to faith and gives him spiritual sight. The Pharisees are upset at the whole thing. And when Yeshua confronts them, this is what he says to them. Uh, John 9, verse 39. For judgment, I've come into this world, so that the blind will see, and those who see will become blind. Some of the Pharisees who are with him heard him say this and asked, What? Are we blind too? Yeshua said, If you were blind, you'd not be guilty of sin. But now that you claim you can see, your guilt remains. Yeshua is saying the Pharisees are spiritually blind. He's saying to them, if you think you're spiritually sighted, that's actually a sign that you're really spiritually blind. And conversely, if you know something of your spiritual blindness, that's a sign you're actually becoming spiritually sighted. So what do we learn from these first two scenes of the story here of Elisha and the chariots of fire? Uh, two things, some puts on the overhead. The first two scenes tell us that spiritual sight, the ability to, to see your spiritual surroundings, to, to know the spiritual reality, this is a gift of God. 
Because that's not something you can come to naturally. Spiritual sight is not natural for anyone. And so we see in this story the bad guys, uh, the Syrian soldiers, they're struck with physical blindness to show them that they're spiritually blind. But we also have a, a good guy, uh, Elisha's servant. He also can't see spiritual reality unless the Lord opens his eyes. So both the good guys and the bad guys are spiritually blind. We are all naturally blind to spiritual reality. There's nice people, there's nasty people, there's moral people, there's immoral people, but we are all spiritually blind. The Bible in Romans 1 says, our foolish hearts are darkened. Uh, Our thinking becomes futile. Uh, Although claiming to be wise, we became fools. We're all blind to spiritual truth and spiritual reality. Why? Because we repress them. We don't like them. Again, Romans 1 says, we repress the truth. So God gives us over uh, to uh, to our foolishness and to our rebellion. John chapter 3, it's about Nicodemus, a moral, Bible-believing person. The next chapter, John 4, is about the Samaritan woman at the well, a pagan, immoral person. And yet, the teaching is they both need to be born again. They both need the regenerating power of the Holy Spirit. They both need the illuminating power of the Holy Spirit. So we're all spiritually blind, both the good and the bad, no matter who you are. And that's why spiritual sight is a gift. It must be a gift. And therefore, becoming a Yeshua follower, it's not just like turning over a new leaf. It's not just like working harder. It's not an extension of what you're already doing. It's not like saying, I'm going to finally you know, reform myself and live the way I ought to live. And a lot of people think that that's what it means to become a Yeshua follower. But no, it's not. It's much more like getting a whole new faculty and being ushered into a whole new realm of reality that you never even knew existed. It's much more radical than just becoming a good person. So imagine someone who was born totally blind. They've never seen anything, ever. They've never experienced the gift of sight. They have no concept of light or or darkness uh, or color or shape or anything. Uh, They're totally blind. And one day they come up to you and they say, I've been hearing people talk about uh, yellow and blue and red, and I'm trying to understand it. Uh, So is red kind of like the sound of a trumpet? Uh, or, or Or is blue like the feel of wool? And all you can say is no. <laughs> because sight is not an extension of hearing or feeling or any other sense. It's not. It's a whole new sense. Sight enables you to perceive realities that neither hearing or touching uh, can perceive. And therefore, there's no way for a person born blind to even imagine what color uh, and darkness and light are like until he or she regains or gains that faculty. And a lot of people think that becoming a Yeshua follower is simply getting an extension of what you already are doing. For example, we ought to obey the golden rule. So as a Yeshua follower, I'm going to really ask God to help me really obey the golden rule and live as I should. Or, or I believe in God, you say. Well, well, you can do that and still have no spiritual sight. 
I believe in God, I'm going to read my Bible, I'm going to pray, I'm going to pray more often. That's not becoming a Yeshua follower. Yeshua said, I came that the blind may see. I came to bring new birth. I came not just to make people nicer, but to make them new. Now, what does this mean? I put this on the overhead. Spiritual sight means that ideas that were either silly to you or just abstract to you become so compelling and so amazing and so thrilling and so real to you that they change you permanently. Sorry. So, for example, uh, Elisha's servant would have known a lot about God. He, he, he would have known a lot about right theology, uh, right doctrine. He would have known that, that God was around him, but he didn't see it. And because he only knew it in his head and it did not affect his heart, it didn't affect how he lived. But when he saw it, uh, uh, when the spiritual reality gripped his heart, it changed him. I know lots of people who believe in a God of forgiveness, and yet they're still racked with shame and guilt. Or, or they, I know people who say, I, I believe in, in biblical sexual ethics, and yet they still have extramarital affairs or, or, or premarital sex. So, so what is it, uh, what is it that to say, I know uh, God says it's wrong, for example, to have sex outside of marriage, but I'm going to do it anyways. What is that? It's to say you know something, but you don't see it on the overhead. For you may know the gospel in the abstract, but you don't see it. Uh, because if you saw it, it would change you. And that's why one of the marks of someone who's becoming not just a more moral person, but they're actually getting spiritual sight, is that they, they, they may hear a message or, or read the Bible, and now they say, you know, I've heard this before, but now it's like the Bible becomes alive to me. It's like there's a divine light on every page. It's like the stuff I knew before, now it's so wonderful. Now it's suddenly thrilling. What's going on? This is the gift of spiritual sight. So in the overhead, number one, the first thing you learn is that spiritual sight is a gift. Number two, secondly, without spiritual sight, we're blind to three key spiritual realities. And to get at this, we're going to look at the conditions of spiritual blindness that are revealed uh, in the story in 2 Kings chapter 6. So, so what is it that we're blind to? What are the realities uh, that we, we can't see we're blind to? You know, when the soldiers, they're struck with blindness, with, we read this in 2 Kings 6, 18. Uh, As the enemy came down toward him, Elijah prayed to the Lord, strike this army with blindness. This is like Paul on the road to Damascus being struck blind. Or this is like the Sodomites who are trying to molest the angels and the Lord struck them blind. So very often in the Bible, spiritual blindness is shown by the Lord striking them, striking you with physical blindness. And so the Syrian army is now struck physically blind to show them uh, their spiritual blindness. Now, what is this condition of spiritual blindness? It has three aspects. Spiritual blindness, please on the overhead. Spiritual blindness is to be blind to, number one, uh, the depth of your sin. Number two, to be blind to the beauty of grace. And number three, to be blind to your own blindness itself. So it's, spiritual blindness is to be blind to the depths of your sin, the beauty of God's grace, and to blindness itself. So number one, the depth of your sin. These Syrian soldiers, they, they thought they were just following orders. 
They didn't know they were fighting God. And in the same way, until you get spiritual sight, you may say, oh, I'm flawed. I admit it. I'm not perfect. I sometimes do bad things. Uh, You may have some concept that you have sins, but you don't understand until you get spiritually sighted the depth of your sin. You can't see sin in its true light any more than these soldiers could see what they were doing in the true light. On the overhead, you see, before spiritual sight comes, you understand sin as discrete violations of rules. You're violating the rules. You understand sin as breaking the rules, and you only regret sin when it messes up your life. To you, sin is breaking the rules, and you only regret it when you get caught or when it messes up your life. But when spiritual sight is given, when it's given to you, when your heart is regenerated by the Holy Spirit, then both of these things change. So on the overhead, first you start to see your sin as not just breaking the rules, but also as a pervasive attitude of your heart. Something that goes extraordinarily deep, uh, that affects every single part of you. So if you ask somebody about spiritual sight, uh, uh, yes, if you ask somebody who does not have spiritual sight, are you a good person? They'll say, well, I've done a lot of bad things, but I've done a lot of good things too. But if you ask a person who does have a spiritual sight, are you a good person? Here's what they'll say. And only a Yeshua follower who has spiritual sight will ever say this. Well, I've done bad things, but even the good things I've done, I've done for bad reasons. I do good things, but I do them in order to control God. So he has to bless me. Or I do good things to control how other people think about me, so I can control my image with them. Or so I can command their respect. Or so that I can have my own self-respect. I help people, but I don't really help them for their sake. I help them for my sake. I obey God, but it's not for his sake, it's for my sake. Only a believer, only a Yeshua follower with spiritual sight will ever understand that or admit that or talk like that. Only a Yeshua follower can see that. C.S. Lewis, in his famous book, Mere Christianity, has a whole chapter on pride, in which he says this. He says, I've had non-believers, I've had those without spiritual sight, admit all kinds of things to me they've done wrong. Uh, discreet individual things. Uh, I lied, uh, I cheated, uh, I stole, uh, I committed adultery. But he says, I've never heard someone who was not a Yeshua follower ever admit or ever confess, I am the most prideful, self-centered, selfish, curved in on myself, self-absorbed person I know. So on the overhead, uh, number one, only with spiritual sight you see that sin is not just this bad thing or that bad thing, but the whole attitude of the heart. And number two, without spiritual sight, you only regret sin when you get into trouble. Uh, you do wrong things, but you only really get upset about it if it screws up your life. That's why uh, when you repent and you say things are going to change, as soon as they get better, you go right back. Why? Because your only real motive was to have a happy life. But only with spiritual sight do you start to, to regret sin simply because it grieves God. Because it dishonors the one who's given you everything. And that never goes away. 
And that's why people without spiritual sight uh, may rue that they're this or that they're that, but when they try to change their behavior, they can't. And people with spiritual sight, when they try to change their behavior, they can. So on the overhead, number one, we're blind to the depth of our sin. Number two, we're blind to the beauty of grace. These soldiers had no idea that the greatest enemy in their eyes, Elisha, was really their greatest friend. And because they're struck with blindness, Elisha meets them on the road, leads them to Samaria, the capital city and the stronghold of the king of Israel. So here's his army that's been ravaging Israel. They can't see. They're led into Samaria. And the king of Israel now, of course, he's really excited. <laughs> he sees a perfect opportunity for revenge and for victory. He's like a kid in a candy store. Look at 2 Kings 6.21. When the king of Israel saw them, he said to Elijah, shall I kill them, my father? Shall I kill them? Notice the Hebraic doubling, uh, which is done in biblical Hebrew for emphasis. The king of Israel, he's really excited. Can I kill them? Can I kill them? And Elisha says no. Elisha actually stands for the Syrian army as their advocate. He stands as their mediator. He stands as their savior. Notice this, the amazing grace that's shown to this army that deserves to die. Remember, they're a murderous band of, of marauding raiders. Uh, and according to all the rules of, of war, Elisha has every right to kill them. But what does he do instead? He captures them so they're completely helpless, and he makes them a feast. This is radical grace. And it changes their life. We read in 2 Kings 6, 23. So the bands from Aram stopped raiding Israel's territory. What Elisha did, the grace he showed was shocking. It was stunning. Uh, they couldn't believe it. It takes the Holy Spirit to have you understand and love the gospel of sheer grace. Let me give you three quick examples of the miracle of the gospel of grace. First example, Paul. Paul was a Pharisee, and he understood that you have to obey the law, uh, and that God is holy, and you need to be holy, and all that is true. He understood that God's righteous and that you need to be righteous, and that's right. But he had no concept of salvation by grace alone. And that's why he says in Philippians 3, uh, uh, verse 6, describing himself prior to his conversion, he says, as for righteousness based on the law, as for legal righteousness, I was faultless. But then he says in, in, in Philippians 3, verse 7, but wherever were gains to me, I now count as loss for the sake of Messiah. What's more, I consider everything a loss because it's a, it's a passing worth of knowing Messiah Yeshua, my Lord, for whose sake I've lost all things. I consider them dung, he says, that I may gain Messiah and be found in him, not having a righteousness, a righteousness of my own that comes from the Torah, that which is through faith in Messiah, a righteousness that comes from God on the basis of faith. Without the Holy Spirit, you can understand you need to be a good person. But only the Holy Spirit can enlighten you to salvation by grace, not works righteousness. 
Uh, only he can enlighten you to the supremacy of Yeshua in all things. And that knowing him is the ultimate goal of life. Dwarfing everything else. Here's a second example. Uh, true story. Messianic rabbi friend of mine, he told me this story about how he was ministering, uh, this is a couple years ago now, to a poor single mom living in a trailer park. She had several children out of wedlock, and each child had a different father. She was living on welfare. She was considered the, on the outs of society, uh, a disgrace. And my friend told her that he wanted to share with her the gospel. Uh, and she said to him, oh, no need to do that. I understand all that. I was raised in church. So he asked her, okay, you think you know it? Tell me, what's the gospel? And so she said, if you live a really, really good life, you will be saved. My friend said, no, it's the exact opposite. You're first saved, and then you're empowered to live a good life. And she said, that makes no sense. And so we explained the gospel to her, and she still couldn't believe it. You mean you can be saved before you're good? And my messianic rabbi friend, he said, yes, of course. And after a while, she said, do you mean you're saved by sheer grace? That God loves me, that he loves me right now just as I am in my sin, all because of what Yeshua did. It's not based on my works or my, my goodness at all. I'm going to have to think about this. So the rabbi left, and she immediately called up her sister. The sister was one of the in people in the community. She was married to a prominent person in the city. They went to a prominent church in their community. And when she told her sister what this messianic rabbi had said, the sister said, that is the stupidest thing I ever heard. That is ridiculous. You have to lead a good life. You have to go to church. Uh, uh, I've worked hard for my salvation. You've got to go get, go and get going, get to work. This messianic rabbi, he's crazy. You can't just waltz in. He can't just tell you it doesn't matter. You've got five children uh, out of wedlock. Uh, be real. So the next week, my rabbi friend comes back. The woman tells him everything the sister had told her. My friend wanted to say, your sister is spiritually blind. (laughs) But he held his tongue. But the point is, she was spiritually blind. And the woman in the the trailer home said to my friend, well, who am I supposed to listen to, you or my sister? And the rabbi says, that's the wrong question. The real question is, what does the Bible say? And they studied the Bible together. And the Lord opened her heart and opened her eyes to the real gospel, and she was saved. Third, final example of of spiritual sight. Several years ago, I heard a story of this pastoral ordination committee that would examine seminary graduates who wanted to be officially ordained uh, for ministry. So the candidates would come before this committee to be examined for approval. And so each candidate was always asked, of course, to give their testimony. And practically every one of them said the same thing, something like this. I was raised in the church, but I never heard the gospel. I never heard the gospel of grace through faith. And then this happened, or that happened in my life. I discovered the truth, and I became a believer. After several of these candidates had given a very similar testimony, the head of the ordination committee, he turned to the other members of the committee... And he said, now I don't want you to get the impression that all these candidates grew up in terrible churches where they never heard the gospel. I don't want you to get that impression. Because I could give a similar testimony. 
and it had nothing to do with the local church I was in. He said, I myself went to, took a bunch of seminary courses on theology and on Bible. And then I was drafted to, to Vietnam. And while there, an army chaplain in Vietnam led me to the Lord. And this guy, who, who now, years later, is head of this ordination committee, he said to the army chaplain, this is amazing. Uh, gospel of grace, I've never heard it before. I thought being a believer was, was just leading a good life. But it's not. It's like having your eyes opened. But for the first time, it's understanding grace. It's trusting in Yeshua. It's being born again and accepted by God. It's experiencing the love and the presence of God and Messiah. Wow. And then he said to the chaplain, why didn't anyone ever tell me the gospel before? My pastor never told me the gospel. My seminary professors never told me the gospel. Even Martin Luther, who I studied in seminary, knew nothing about the gospel. And the chaplain said, well, why would you say that? Well, I read his famous commentary on Galatians, and there's nothing about the gospel in there. And the chaplain said, well, now that you're a believer, why don't you go back and read it again? So the guy who's now the chairman of this ordination committee, he goes back and he, he, he reads the book again, and there, on every page, was the gospel. In fact, he had highlighted it, underlined it, and starred it. And he said, but he said, I hadn't seen it. It was there all along, but I didn't have eyes to see. And then he says, I want you to know there are young people growing up today in my congregation under my preaching, who are not hearing the gospel. And it's not because I don't preach it every week, but because they don't have eyes to see until the Holy Spirit opens their eyes. So the beauty of grace is something you can take in, something you could apprehend only with the help of the Holy Spirit. You may say, yeah, I've heard about the doctrine of justification by faith. And in your life, you ignore it, you reject it, you don't really deep down believe it. Unless the Holy Spirit opens your eyes, it becomes, and it becomes the most wonderful thing you've ever heard, the most compelling thing, the most astounding thing you've ever heard. Unless that happens, until that happens, you are still blind. So in the overhead, spiritually blind people are blind, number one, to the depth of their sin, number two, to the beauty of grace, and number three, they're blind to their blindness. One of the ways you know you're blind, ironically, is that you don't think you are. And if you don't think you're blind, and I'm sorry, and, 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 and so if you don't think you're blind, that actually, that actually is evidence that you are blind. Most self-centered people have no idea they're self-centered. The least self-centered people actually have a pretty good idea that they are self-centered. That's the way it works. Yeshua says, if you say that you see, you're blind. But if you say, I can't see right, I'm blind, that means you're beginning to have sight, according to Yeshua. So on the overhead, number one, there's the condition, spiritual blindness. Number two, there's the gift, uh, the beauty of grace. Now, finally, number three, how do you get that gift? How does the condition of your blindness get healed? I'm going to give you uh, three hows and one why. How can the condition of your spiritual blindness be healed? On the overhead, uh, three hows are this. Stages, suffering, 
and prayer. Okay, and then we'll go to the why. Number one, stages. You need to recognize the fact that even though there, there is a, there's a spiritual uh, a healing to your sight that brings you to see the depth of your sin, uh, that brings you to, to the gospel of grace, uh, that brings you to Yeshua and his salvation, nonetheless, the, your spiritual sight often comes in stages. So look at Ephesians 1, verse 18. Paul is writing to, writing to people who are already believers, people who are Yeshua followers. And he says this, I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened in order that you may know the hope to which you've been called, to which he has called you, the riches of his glorious inheritance to his people, and his incomparably great power for us who believe. So Paul tells these believers that he's praying for them that the spiritual eyes of their heart would be opened so they can grasp uh, the hope and the power and the glory of what they have in Messiah, Yeshua. So what's Paul saying here? He's saying, in essence, yeah, you see enough to be saved, but your spiritual sight needs to be constantly to be improving. It still needs to be further developed. Uh, We're all still somewhat nearsighted. Even the best believers are still somewhat spiritually nearsighted. Even the most mature believers still need to develop uh, their spiritual sight. So on the overhead, number one, your spiritual blindness is healed in stages. Number two, it tends to be healed, interestingly, the most by suffering. Notice again the story. Where, where does the story happen? It's not by accident that the author tells us. It happens in the town of Dothan. Dothan. Uh, but there's also another time that Dothan is featured prominently in the Bible, if you remember. So here in our story, in 2 Kings 6, there's, uh, here we have a man in Dothan who is about to be captured. He looks to God. Chariots of fire, he's delivered. But centuries before this, in the book of Genesis, Joseph, this self-absorbed, spoiled, stuck-up teenager, he went to see his older brothers who were tending the flocks outside of this very same town of Dothan. But the brothers, they capture him, right? They throw him in a pit. They sell him as a slave to the Ishmaelites. No deliverance, no chariots of fire, no legions of angels. So in our non-spiritual sight, we can superficially look at these two Dothan stories and say, Joseph was in trouble, Elisha was in trouble. God came through for Elisha. God did not come through for Joseph. But you know that's not true. If Joseph had been immediately delivered, if he hadn't gone through his terrible suffering and years of imprisonment and slavery, he never would have risen up He never would have saved Egypt from famine. He never would have saved his own family. And he himself never would have been redeemed from his own sin. And so this reference to the town of Dothan shows us that one of the ways out of spiritual blindness is to have bad things happen to you, like what happened to Joseph. That's what God used to wake him up. Overhead. The delusion of self-sufficiency is at the heart of spiritual blindness. Let me say that again. The delusion of self-sufficiency is at the very heart of your spiritual blindness. It's the attitude that says, I know best. I can see best. My perspective is the right one. That's the heart of spiritual blindness. And it's suffering that often destroys that delusion. It's on the overhead. Suffering is one of the ways out of spiritual blindness. 
And the ability to see that God is still there even in the midst of your suffering, even when he seems not to be answering, to see that God is still there is one of the marks of spiritual sightedness. So on the overhead, we have stages, uh, we have suffering. Number three, prayer. Paul in Ephesians 3, he prays the eyes of our heart will be lightened, the heart will grasp more of the depth and the height and the breadth and the, and the width uh, of the love of God. I know for me personally, when, when I pray in the morning, my spiritual sight begins to clear. And the things that upset me the day before, they, they get put in perspective. But then I also, I also see that I need to pray again in the evening because I've forgotten half of what I heard in the morning. <laughs> Your spiritual sight is something that you, you're always pursuing. You're always striving to improve, always pressing in to clarify, to deepen your walk with Yeshua, uh, and to more clearly hear what he's saying to you through prayer. So on the overhead, spiritual sight is healed in stages, often through suffering and through prayer. But finally, finally is why. Why can this happen? Here's why. Why were these soldiers saved? They were doing terrible things, the Assyrian soldiers, they're not innocent. Why could they just be let go? Indeed, the king of Israel, if you remember, is very upset with Elijah for, for letting them go. Elijah, what are you doing? Why are you acting as a mediator? Why are you acting as a, as a savior? How can you let these guys off? You know what they've done. They deserve to die. And Elisha says, no, let them go. And he prepares a feast for them. A feast of grace. That changes them. And after this, they stopped raiding Israel's territory. Now, on one level, letting them go, it doesn't seem fair, does it? It doesn't seem just. But here's why it can happen to you and to me. Why we can get this grace. Centuries later, there were a bunch of soldiers who were also trying to capture a prophet and kill him. He was the greatest prophet of all time, and more than a prophet. He was in the Garden of Gethsemane when the soldiers came. And this prophet, he also knew that he likewise was surrounded by legions of angels and chariots of fire. But he does not call upon them. In fact, when Peter draws his sword to defend Yeshua, this is what Yeshua says. Matthew 26, 52. Put your sword back in its place. For all who live by the sword, die by the sword. Do you think I cannot call my father? And he'll at once put at my disposal more than 12 legions of angels? But then how would the scriptures be fulfilled that say it must happen this way? You see, all the other deliverers, all the other prophets, all the other people in the, in the history of the world who were recipients of grace, able to receive grace, Because their sin was put on Yeshua. Yeshua was executed so you wouldn't have to be. Yeshua was plunged into darkness on the cross so that you could be brought into light. Yeshua took the punishment so that you could get the feast when you deserved to be executed. So that you could be saved. So that you could get spiritual sight. That's why God can give you spiritual sight. If you simply turn from your sin and turn from yourself and turn to Yeshua. So ask the Lord today for spiritual sight. Call out, Lord, please open my eyes. I want to see Yeshua. 
And if you have a mature believer here today, that's fine. You still struggle because you still don't see as you ought to see. You also need a touch from the Lord. So cry out, Lord, remove all darkness from me. Show me your light and your beauty. Remove all fear from me. Show me the hope of the resurrection. Open my eyes to your presence all around me. I want to see more of you, Yeshua. And finally, remember, Yeshua says, the only ones who receive sight are those who admit that they're blind. Amen. Let's stand and pray. Thank God the music came to come on up. Thank you, Father. Father, we thank you today for these lessons from Elisha, these themes of, of a physical blindness representing a deeper spiritual blindness. Lord, we admit without you, we are all spiritually blind. We're blind uh, to the depth of our sin. We're blind to our deep-seated sin nature. We're blind to the beauty of your grace. And most of all, we're blind to our blindness. Lord, only you can restore our spiritual sight. So, Lord, open my eyes. We want to see you and know you and love you and follow you. We know that spiritual sight is your gift. It's not something we can earn or merit or achieve on our own. And we know that the true spiritual sight, it changes us. Why? Because it regenerates us into new creations. So, Lord, give us eyes to see. Open our eyes. We may see more of your beauty, your holiness, your amazing grace. Yeshua, you took the punishment so that we could get the feast. You were plunged into darkness on the tree so that we could be brought into your marvelous light. So Yeshua, we ask you today for renewed spiritual sight. Lord, open my eyes so I can see more of you. Remove all darkness from me. Remove my sin. Renew my mind. Cleanse me. Purify me. Show me your light and beauty. Remove all fear and doubt from my life. I want to see more of you, Yeshua. Yeshua, fill my heart. Immerse me with your spirit. For I pray this in your name. Amen. Shabbat shalom.